We've come this morning to the conclusion of the first half of Romans. This letter, which is really more of a doctrinal treatise, can be divided into three main sections. In Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul sets forth the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes because... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is received by faith, a righteousness which alone justifies sinners in the sight of God. Romans 1 through 8 is the most extensive, exquisite presentation of God's saving work to be found anywhere in all of Scripture. It is a masterpiece of redemptive theology. Romans 9 through 11 comprises the second main section of this letter. And it answers the question, which was of critical importance to the first century church, the question of where do the people of Israel fit into God's redemptive plan, particularly in light of the fact that the majority of the Jewish people have rejected their Messiah and the church is becoming predominantly Gentile. Does this mean that the word of God has failed? Does it mean that God tried his best to save the children of Abraham and just couldn't quite get it done? Well, Paul will answer that question most forcefully in Romans 9 through 11 with reference to God's sovereign purpose of election as well as Israel's past, present, and future role in redemptive history. Then Romans 12 to 16 forms the third major section of the letter, picking up where Romans 8 left off by applying the gospel to the life and fellowship of the church. It answers the question, what does a church look like if it is erected upon the foundation of the gospel set forth in Romans 1 through 8? How do the members of such a church relate to one another? And how does this church relate to the world at large? Essentially, Romans 12 to 16 answers the question, how then shall we live in light of the gospel? So as we come to the end of Romans 8 today, we find that Paul is doing more than just concluding a thought or concluding a passage or concluding a chapter. Paul is doing nothing less than summing up the gospel. The first words of verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What things? These words have reference not only to the immediate context of verses 28 to 30, and that golden chain of God's redemptive work, foreknowledge, predestination, justification, calling, and glorification. And it has reference to more than just verses 18 to 30 and God's plan to bring his people to glory through suffering. And it has reference to more than just verses 1 to 30 of Romans chapter 8 and how the Spirit has set believers free to walk in faith and love and power and new life. The these things of verse 31 refers to Paul's entire discourse on the gospel, which began in chapter 1 and verse 16. 
Paul is about to tell us how he thinks we ought to respond to what we've been studying over the past year and a half. And what he emphasizes is that the gospel, Paul's gospel, the only true gospel there is, ought to give us an unshakable, almost defiant confidence that God will save us no matter what. His promise cannot fail. Let me read you what John Stott wrote concerning this passage. He said, the apostle's answer to his own question, the question of what then shall we say to these things, is to ask five more questions, questions to which there is no answer. He hurls them out into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and no thing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. I like that. Because I think it captures the tone of this passage. Paul's tone is triumphant. It's defiant. He's almost daring someone to attempt to challenge his conclusions. And that's the kind of confidence that he wishes to impart to us this morning. What then shall we say to these things? Bring on the suffering, the groaning, the trials, the tribulations. God will see us through. That's what we should say. Bring on Satan, the accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day before our God. God will shut his mouth. That's what we should say. Bring on all the condemning voices, both of the world outside and in our own conscience. For Christ is our crucified and risen advocate and he never loses a case. That's what we should say to these things. My prayer over the next two weeks is that God would be pleased to impart to us this kind of holy boldness rooted in the gospel of Christ. Because this is the key to security. This is the key to confidence. This is the key to an unshakable joy in any and every circumstance, especially in times of suffering. Before we work through these verses, however, I want to acknowledge that this passage only addresses one form of doubt, and therefore it offers to us only one form of assurance. The main thesis of this passage, verses 31 to 39, is that if you are in Christ, you can never be lost, but shall surely be preserved in faith by God's grace through every suffering, every trial, every tribulation of this life. That's Paul's point. Romans 8, 31 to 39 is the central text for the doctrine of eternal security. And this is a vitally important doctrine. It offers an unwavering confidence to those who worry that they won't be able to make it. That their sufferings mean that God has abandoned them. 
that when they appear before the judgment seat of God, he will finally disown them because they failed to attain to his standard. The assurance offered in this passage is exceedingly precious to those who view salvation as a precarious thing. Something rooted and grounded in their own merit, in their own works, in their own commitment. What Paul offers in this passage is precious to those who fear that God has disinherited them because of what they've done. That their sins have disqualified them from the everlasting kingdom. It's precious to those, for instance, who come from a Catholic background wherein justification is not a present possession, but is a future hope based upon the accumulation of good works and the avoidance of mortal sin. It's precious to those who come from a Wesleyan or Methodist or Arminian background, wherein a serious fall tomorrow may cause you to forfeit a justification that you possess today. You'll notice that Paul offers in this passage five unshakable pillars of eternal security, and not a one of them has anything to do with our own works, our own commitment, our own will. Every one of them is rooted in the gracious purpose of God and the redeeming work of Christ on our behalf. In other words, this passage offers what I call an objective assurance, an assurance that not One of God's elect will ever be lost. Not one of Christ's redeemed will ever be condemned. But not everyone struggles with doubts about the objective certainty of God's salvation. Not everyone comes from a Catholic or Wesleyan background where justification is made to rest upon our own works. Not everyone struggles to believe that God preserves and keeps every one of his elect. What many struggle to believe is that they are, in fact, among those elect. They don't wrestle with doubts as to whether someone who is justified can ever be condemned. They know that isn't possible. What they fear is that they're not justified to begin with. In other words, their doubts center Not upon the question of objective assurance, but on the question of subjective assurance. Assurance as it applies to them. The question is not, does God keep all whom he saves? They know he does. Rather, the question is, am I among the saved? In order to glory in the objective assurance offered in these verses, you must first achieve some measure of subjective assurance assurance. In order to appropriate the tremendous confidence offered to us, the boldness which, God, which Paul wishes to instill in this passage, you must first be sure that it is, in fact, addressed to you. Because the promises of this passage are not given to everyone. Look again at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, standing at the head of this glorious passage is an enormous conditional statement. Nothing can stand against you, comma, if God is for you. So is he? 
That's what we need to establish before we can glory in the promises about to come. Because God is not for everyone. Indeed, God is against some. Now, thankfully, we have two tests to help us determine the answer to whether we can rightly claim these promises for our own. All we need to do is trace Paul's flow of thought up through the passage to find out who the us is in verse 31. And if we do so, we we surely find that the us of verse 31 is those whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified in verses 29 through 30. And the us of verse 31 is those upon whom, or those rather, who love God and are called according to his purpose, those for whom God works all things for good in verse 28. In verse 28, then, we find two clear, unmistakable tests of whether or not we are among those whom God is for, in verse 31. To whom God will give, graciously give, all things, in verse 32. Whether we are among the elect whom God has justified, verse 33. Those for whom Christ died and rose and ascended and for whom he intercedes, in verse 34. Those for whom nothing can separate them from the love of Christ, verses 35 to 39. All of those promises, all of those five pillars of eternal security are for all those and only those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we're going to start where we began a few weeks ago. We're going to break those two conditions down in order to examine whether or not we are in the faith. The first question is, do I love God? What does it mean to love God? This can be a tricky question because, in my mind at least, it calls to to my attention, Jesus' statement concerning the great commandment of the law, Matthew twenty two thirty seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Now, is there anyone in here bold enough to claim to have attained to that standard, that you love God perfectly? Probably not. But if not... If you don't love God perfectly, how do you know that you love him truly? That is, that you love God sufficiently. I think the context provides us with some clues as to what Paul means by those who love God. I want you to think through what he said in Romans 8 regarding the unregenerate man, the the natural man who's still in the flesh. Paul says earlier in the chapter that, verse 5, his mind is still set on the flesh. Verse 7, he is hostile to God. He does not submit to God's law. Indeed, he cannot. That is who we are by nature. By nature, our hearts are hostile towards God. Therefore, one who loves God, and love is the opposite of hostility, hatred, one who loves God must be one for whom that natural hostility has been radically transformed such that now his mind is set on the things of the Spirit 
and he willingly, gladly, joyfully embraces God's rule and reign over his life. So note this, the true test of whether you love God is not whether you get liver shivers when we sing worship songs. The true test of whether you love God is whether you willingly and joyfully submit to God's law. That is to his rule and reign over your life. A rule and reign which is exercised through his word. Which is precisely why Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commands. So ask yourself, do I love God? Has my disposition towards his word and towards his divine right to tell me what to believe and how to live, has that natural disposition towards God been turned from one of hostility into a a joyful, willing submission? Do I want God to rule and reign over me because I trust God? That God, God's will is for my greater joy. That's question number one. Question number two, am I called of God? Again, the context provides us with the information we need to answer that question. We see in verse 30, look down at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he did call. Those whom he called, he did justify. We see in verse 30 that all who are called are justified. Therefore, the calling of God inevitably and infallibly leads to that faith which justifies. The calling produces faith in everyone who is called. Therefore, the evidence that you are called is that you believe. So in order to determine whether you are called according to his purpose, you need to examine your relationship to the gospel. You need to examine whether you acknowledge the truth that all your righteousness is as filthy rags before the holy judgment of God. Isaiah 64, 6. Have you embraced the atoning death of Christ as the only and sufficient payment Of the debt of sin which you owe. Such that you have stopped trying to satisfy that debt by your own works and penance and satisfaction. Have you wrapped your soul by faith in the free righteousness of Christ. Just like you're putting on a a robe to cover your nakedness. And on that basis alone you present yourself before God. If you can answer those two questions in the affirmative. Do I love God? Yes. Not perfectly. But truly. Am I called of God? That is, do I believe the gospel? Yes. Not perfectly. But truly, then you can proceed to verses 31 to 39, to the strong and unshakable promises to be found there, because they are spoken to you. 
And you may have confidence that no matter what, God will keep you, he will preserve you in faith, and he will complete the salvation which he has begun in you. Being found, you can never be lost. Over the next two weeks, we will walk through this passage in Romans 8 and we'll unpack together the five unshakable pillars of our eternal security. Five reasons that Paul gives why the justified can never be condemned, the saved can never be lost. And our method will be to take these five rhetorical questions and and flip them around and turn them into declarative statements. Let me show you what I mean. The first pillar of eternal security is found in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If we turn that question into a declaration, we get, since God is for us, none can be against us. So what does it mean that God is for us? When I was meditating upon this verse last week, I was just turning that phrase over and over and over in my mind, and and a passage from the book of Joshua kept rising up. The passage is found in Joshua 5. It's when the armies of Israel have crossed over the Jordan, and they're preparing to wage war with the peoples of Canaan and to conquer the promised land, beginning with the city of Jericho. And on the eve of battle, Joshua He seems to be off by himself, away from the camp, probably overlooking the city and and devising battle plans, when suddenly there stands in front of him a man, a warrior, with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the warrior responds, neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have come. At this, Joshua falls to the ground with his face to the earth, and he worships this divine warrior. Then the commander of the Lord's army says, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, the fact that Joshua worships this heavenly warrior and is not rebuked or killed but rather is told to remove his sandals because he's standing on holy ground, language which is identical to the burning bush passage in Exodus 3, proves, I think, that this figure is not a mere angel because angels do not render a place holy by their very presence and they most certainly do not receive worship. In other words, this figure is none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God, the commander of the angelic host. And I want to focus for a moment on Joshua's question and on Christ's response. Joshua asks a simple question. And you can't blame him because this glorious figure stands in front of him looking like he's ready to do battle. And Joshua says, are you for us or for them? Are you for us or against us? Does that language sound familiar? And the warrior's response is, neither I am for the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? The divine warrior explicitly tells Joshua, I am not for you. 
And yet what happens? He immediately informs Joshua how he is to conquer the city of Jericho by marching his armies around it for six days, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And on the seventh day, they're to march around the city seven times. And when they reach the seventh time, they're to blow their trumpets. There's a shout and and the walls will crumble to the ground and they will enter in and they will conquer. So take note of that. The warrior says, I am not for you. I am for the Lord. Nevertheless... I will cause you to conquer your enemies. Now, why did the warrior say, I am not for you, but rather for the Lord? I am not for Israel. I'm for God. I suspect it has to do with the conditional nature of the covenant which God made with the nation of Israel. A covenant which they egregiously violated almost as soon as it was made. Think back to the book of Exodus. After God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Sinai and there he forged a covenant with them. Yet when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant and for the tabernacle and for the priesthood, Israel was down below worshiping a golden calf and behaving like pagans. In response, God declares that he's going to destroy Israel, but Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf. He implores the Lord for mercy, and God grants mercy. The covenant is then renewed, but the cycle of sin and covenant infidelity continues throughout the wilderness journeys, throughout Israel's long history as a nation. In Deuteronomy, Moses even told the people, not many days before Joshua's encounter with this divine warrior, Deuteronomy 29.4, he's standing before the peoples of Israel and he says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. He hasn't given it to you. He then prophesies Israel's ultimate rejection and exile. But then, in the very next chapter, he looks beyond that rejection, beyond that exile. He looks over that to a new covenant, a new redemptive work which God would would make in the future. What the later prophets would refer to as the new covenant. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. Then... The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul so that you may live. The Sinai covenant, the covenant with the nation of Israel was a conditional covenant. The blessings of the covenant, the promised land, prosperity, peace, the presence of the Lord, all of those blessings were conditioned upon the people's obedience to the terms of that covenant, namely the law. If they obeyed, they would experience God's blessing, first half of Deuteronomy 28. If they disobeyed, they would experience his cursing, second half of Deuteronomy 28. By the time of Joshua's encounter with the divine warrior, Israel had proven themselves over and over and over again unfaithful to the covenant. They did not love the Lord their God, and that's why God was not for them. That's why I think the divine warrior says, I am not for Israel. 
I am for the Lord. But it is the Lord's will to give the promised land to Israel for a time. But God's covenant with the church is different. God's covenant with the spiritual seed, the true descendants of Abraham, is different. The new covenant is not a conditional covenant. Or maybe more accurately, it is a conditional covenant in which every condition is fulfilled in Christ on behalf of of his people. It is not conditioned on our obedience, our love, our commitment, nor is it mediated by the blood of bulls and goats. It is conditioned solely upon the perfect righteousness of Christ, and it is mediated upon the blood of the Son of God. And this covenant brings with it the new birth, the circumcision of the heart of which Moses spoke, so that everyone who is in the covenant has had their heart circumcised by the hand of the Lord so that they love the Lord their God with all their hearts, all their souls, all their minds, and all their strength. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant creates eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand, enabling us to truly love God. Not yet perfectly, but truly love God from the heart, thus fulfilling the law. Therefore, when Paul, like Joshua, asks of Christ, are you for us or against us? Christ has no hesitation. He says, I am for you. And therefore, none can stand against you. You think the walls fell in Jericho, you just Wait. And he does not give us the promised land temporarily or conditionally, but eternally and infallibly. This then is the first unshakable pillar of our eternal security. Why is it that the believer can never be lost and can never be condemned? It is because of God's covenantal disposition towards us. This new covenant in Christ is unconditional, secured forever infallibly by the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, no enemy can triumph over you, neither the world, nor the flesh, nor the devil. You will enter the land. You will triumph, and you will dwell there eternally in the presence of your God and Father forever and ever, world without end. We're going to deal with one more unshakable pillar of our eternal security before we conclude for the morning. Second pillar is found in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All right, so we turn the second rhetorical question into a declaration. We get this. Since God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, he will assuredly give us all things. Now, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. In other words, since God has done the greater in delivering his son over to suffering and death for us, he will surely do for us the lesser, namely, 
keep us in faith by the working of his divine power so that we receive the reward for which his son died. So let's break down both parts of this declaration. There's a condition and there's a conclusion, okay? The condition is found in the first half of the sentence. If or since God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Hey, we can't just breeze over that, that condition if we want to experience the certainty of the conclusion because it's by emphasizing the greatness of the condition that the certainty of the conclusion becomes clear. That's how an argument from the greater to the lesser works. So there are three elements of this condition which establish its greatness and therefore ensure the infallible certainty of the conclusion. First, We see the son's identity. Who is it that God gave up? Paul says God did not spare but delivered over his own son. It's very precise language and it's intended to distinguish the sonship of Christ from our sonship. We are God's sons by adoption. Jesus is God's son uniquely By eternal generation. We are God's sons, but only Jesus is God's only begotten son. So if it is the greatness of the gift, which establishes the greatness of the giving, which establishes the generosity of the giver, then Paul is announcing to us that God gave the most precious gift in all the universe, his unique, only begotten, eternally generated son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we note the father's activity, highlighted in the contrast between the word spared and the word forgave up or delivered over. I want to read you a statement from one of, the, one of the best commentators on Romans in the 20th century, a guy by the name of John Murray. He says, Parents spare their children when they do not inflict the full measure of the chastisement due. Judges spare criminals when they do not pronounce a sentence commensurate with the crime committed. By way of contrast, this is not what God the Father did. He did not withhold or lighten one whit the full toll of judgment executed upon his own well-beloved and only begotten son. There was no alleviation of the stroke, for it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, says Isaiah 53.10. There was no mitigation. Judgment was dispensed upon the son in its unrelieved intensity. Spared not expresses nothing less. And the point Murray is making is, That when God the Father delivered over his son to face his righteous judgment, he did not take it easy on him. He did not lighten the load of wrath one ounce. That would not have accomplished our redemption. When Christ died upon the cross for us all, he faced the full undiluted intensity of the father's hatred of sin. God hates sin with an infinite hatred, and this hatred is expressed in infinite wrath towards sinners. And on the judgment day, this infinite wrath will be poured out upon those sinners forever and ever. But 
for those for whom Christ died, those for whom he was delivered over, whom Paul says, us all, judgment day for us occurred some 2,000 years ago at Calvary when the Father took our sins, imputed them to Christ, delivered Christ over to judgment and death in our place. Delivering Christ over to the envy of the Jews and the sadistic cruelty of the Romans and the evil delight of the hosts of darkness, but ultimately delivered him over to the full fury of his own wrath against sin. And there upon the Christ, upon the cross, Christ bore it all, absorbed it all, finished it all, triumphed over it all. That's what Paul means when he says the father spared not his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Third, then, we need to note the recipients, that's us, particularity and universality. Watch this. For whom was Christ not spared but delivered over? For us all, right? Well, the extent of us all is, again, determined by the context. So just thinking in terms of verses 28 to 39, who are us all? It is those who love God and are called according to his purpose, verse 28. It is those whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, verses 29 to 30. It is the us whom God is for and not against, verse 31. It is the elect whom God has justified, verse 33. It is the us for whom Christ died, rose, ascended, and intercedes at the right hand of God, verse 34. And it is the us whom no force in heaven, on earth, or hell can separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, verses 35 to 39. Christ was not spared, but was delivered over for the elect, the people of God, the church, his sheep. In other words, it is a particular atonement for which, or which Christ provided. It is for us all, not for them all. Nevertheless, it is for us all. There is not one Christian, not one, for whom this promise of verse 32 does not apply. If Christ was not spared but was delivered over for you, if you love God and are called according to his purpose, you can be assured that God will not fail to provide you with everything you need to endure to the end and so receive everlasting glory with Christ. The particular atonement of Christ assures the universal salvation of the church. If there are some for whom Christ died, who in the end do not make it, how, I ask you, does verse 32 provide you with any confidence? The confidence comes from the knowledge that there are none for whom Christ died who will fail to be saved. Well, we've explored the condition of the promise. We're now in a position to appreciate its conclusion. Since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will assuredly give us all things that we need in order to make it, in order to persevere to the end and so to enter into glory. Since God has done the greater, 
giving his own son to purchase our salvation, he will surely do the lesser, supply us with everything we need in order to see that salvation completed. So what are the all things which Paul is certain that God will graciously give us? Well, again, I think the context makes this clear. Makes it clear, for instance, that it is not all things we may want. Nor is it all things we think we may need. This is not a promise to be ripped from its context and applied to any and every painful situation from which we wish to be delivered. It cannot be applied haphazardly to those things that we deem to be essential to our own happiness and welfare. Just look at the context. Context, context, context. Just look at it. The very people to whom Paul makes this promise, the Romans, will soon, remember the situation in the church at Rome, in less than 10 years, they will be covered in tar and pitch and set on fire to light the streets of Rome. They will suffer tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Verse 35. Yet, God will give them all things. They will be killed all the day long. They will be as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet, God will graciously give them all things. Therefore, verse 32 cannot mean that God will spare you from tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. It cannot mean that God will spare you from disease, divorce, debt, disaster. It cannot mean that God will spare you from heartache or wayward children or difficult work situations or unjust accusations or failing health or anything else you may wish to avoid in this life because you think that it will destroy your joy. It must mean that God will give you the grace and faith to persevere through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, slaughter. He will give you all things you need to persevere through such things so that you don't lose the reward which Christ was not spared but delivered over to purchase for you. The promise means that there are none, not one, for whom Christ died who will fail to receive everlasting glory with him. Now we're going to unpack the next three promises Next week, I want to close today by simply giving you the words of Christ himself, which confirm everything that Paul says in this passage. These words come from John chapter 10, the famous Good Shepherd discourse, which Jesus gave in Jerusalem just months before he died. Listen to them and be assured. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life For the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. My father and I are one. The father gave a flock of sheep to the son in order that he would be to them a good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. How many of them? All of them. In order that the wolf, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, slaughter, the world, the flesh, the devil, the wolf would not snatch them away and would not devour them. Having laid down his life in order to save the sheep, the good shepherd took it up again. And he now lives in order to lead his sheep to everlasting glory. They will never perish. None will ever snatch them out of his hand. Not one of them will ever be lost. Why? Because of the electing purpose of the father who gave the flock to the son. Because of the atoning death of the son who laid down his life for the sheep and took it up again. And because of the omnipotent power of the risen Christ who by the Spirit infallibly shepherds his sheep to everlasting glory such that none of them are lost. This is the doctrine of eternal security. They will never perish. Founded upon the truths of a particular atonement, I lay down my life for the sheep and ultimately rooted in an eternal election. The flock which the Father has given to me. You cannot have one eternal security without the other eternal election. 